Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Jyothi Rao, I am super excited to welcome you to Leave Your Mark, and I cannot believe the last time we saw each other was February, right before the world essentially came to an end. It feels like it was a different universe that we were in. I think so, but it's so great to see you. You have had such a remarkable career, and I especially love your story because you did not really jump around, and I think that a lot of young people today think that moving from job to job is sort of the answer. And I think that your story, which we will dig into, is a great example of what happens when you sort of roll up your sleeves and dedicate yourself and become a loyal partner to one company. So for everyone listening, Jyothi Rao is the president of Intermix, which is a store that we all know and love and shop at. But what's so interesting about Jyothi's journey is that right after college, and literally she went on an on-campus interview with The Gap, right after college, she joined The Gap and worked her way up the ladder for 12 years, holding several executive positions and being responsible for growing the domestic and international businesses for both The Gap and Banana Republic. She then left for a stint went to Calvin Klein for two years, and then landed at Gilt as the executive vice president and general manager of Gilt.com, where she really honed those digital chops. But then that prepared you, Jyothi, for your full circle moment coming back in 2014 when you went back to The Gap to take over as president of Intermix. If people are wondering what Jyothi's role is, she is responsible for crafting the vision for the brand and developing the overall business strategy. And I think that what's so interesting about Intermix in particular and what you've done there is I don't think people realize that every single store is unique in the way that you look at the curation of the designers and the product. So we'll get into those tactics, but you have a remarkable childhood and a remarkable, like, where in the world is Josie's story? I think you call it a nomadic childhood, right? I've had a very nomadic life. I have. So where does the journey start? Well, first of all, Aliza, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I love it. I think what you're doing, telling women's stories and lifting other women up is extraordinary. And I think it's so important to do that. And I hope more women do that for one another because it's not done enough. So bravo to you for doing that. Thank you. 
Um, and I'm very honored and humbled to be in the lineup of all the extraordinary women you've had on your podcast. I've listened to many of them and learned a lot. So my journey, you know, it's really funny because I think I was well into my teens when I realized that the life I had was unusual. I thought this was kind of what everyone's life was like for quite some time. But yes, I was born in India. I moved with my family to Nigeria, which is a lovely country in West Africa, when I was seven. Then I was sent to boarding school, not due to my behavior or anything, you know, <laughs> just sent to boarding school. I'm glad you clarified. <laughs> <laughs> At the age of 10, which was interesting, given that my parents were still living in Africa. So my sister and I I had my sister with me who's a year older than I am, so that was definitely helpful. But we went at age 10 and 11 to boarding school in England. Wow. Very proper boarding school, which was fantastic. And I got a really wonderful education there and lived in England for most of my childhood and then came to the United States for college. So four continents before the age of 20 certainly makes you, I think, very adaptable and used to change, which I think has actually been something that has worked out quite well for me in my career and also in my personal life, because I think it just helps you be uh, more agile. Oh, I, I think that's probably very valid. So young Jothi wanted to be what when she grew up? Well, interestingly, you know, probably for a long time, I had no idea, like most young people <laughs> don't, uh, which I think is absolutely fine, by the way. But when I was about 16 or so, you know, I thought I wanted to be an economist. In England, they have a different educational system where you start to specialize in what you're going to study at a pretty young age. You do your what's called your ordinary level exams, O-level exams when you're 16, and then you do what's called your advanced level exams when you're 18. And for my advanced level exams, I studied economics and mathematics and French. So I really thought I was going to become an economist, you know, work for the IMF or do something like that. And then I actually got a seat at the London School of Economics. And at the last minute, my parents decided that you know, my sister and I really should be educated in the United States because they felt that women and especially women of color would have more opportunities in this country. And so I gave up that seat and came to the U.S. and went from a small, private, very English school of all girls to the University of Texas at Austin, which was 40,000 co-ed student body. Um, not sure my parents really thought that one through entirely, <laughs> but it was a culture shock to say the least. But, you know, that's really the journey, you know, that I made coming from England over to here. Where did the fashion part come from? Oh, yeah, the fashion part. Yeah, so I thought I was going to be an economist. And while I was doing my A-levels, I was living in London. And I used to go shopping, you know, on the weekends as a teenager. I used to take the tube, which is the, you know, metro underground and into, into the center of London. And I would just walk down South Malton Street and New Bond Street and all those incredible Covent Gardens. And I would go into the stores. I was a teenager. I couldn't afford a single thing in any of the stores. But I just was really fascinated with all of it. And, you know, at that time, no internet, none of that. So, you know, I went to stores. I used to ogle over all the clothes. I used to read all the magazines voraciously. And I discovered who Karl Lagerfeld was and Jean-Paul Gaultier. And, you know, London in the late 80s was a really fun time. There was so much happening on the music scene. There was so much happening with fashion. 
And it was a great time to be there. My first concert I ever went to was The Cure. Oh, love. This is how old I am, everybody. And now you can figure out how old I am. So it was a really fun time and I think very influential in some ways. But I always had this combination of really liking the economic side of things. And then I also had an interest in fashion. So I really didn't put the two things together in my mind, quite frankly. I went to college, you know, I graduated, I interviewed with a bunch of different companies. I thought maybe I'll be an investment banker, maybe I'll be a marketer, maybe I'll be this. When you're 21 years old, the world is your oyster. And I think that that's a great thing because it makes you very open-minded to a lot of opportunities. And I think I fell into the gap, literally. (laughs) I fell into this career. And it ended up being the perfect career for me because it was this exact combination of business and fashion together. And it really worked to my interests and my passion. And I think I always say to younger people when I meet them, speak to them, you know, follow your passion, follow the things that you love to do because you're most likely to enjoy it and you're most likely to succeed in it. And, you know, you spend a lot of time at work. And you have many extraordinarily wonderful days and you have several really crappy days. (laughs) But, you know, if you enjoy what you do, it gets you up every morning and it gets you to work and you, you push through those things. So what was the actual job that you accepted in 1990? So I accepted a job called Merchandise Trainee. And there was no training program. So it was really the training program of Sink or Swim. I worked for this head merchant who I was petrified of. I think I spent my first year as a merchandise trainee folding samples in a sample closet. So I'm sure my father would have been really pleased that the college education he paid for, you know, went towards that. Sounds about right. Yeah. You know, it was back in the day and that's kind of what you did and you did what you were told to do. But I have to say, you know, in the introduction, you said I was at one company for a very long time. I think at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people who've been successful, made it to very senior positions. It's not that we're all necessarily smarter than everybody else or gifted or incredibly intuitive more than anyone else's. I think a lot of us just have resilience, you know, we just have resilience and we've just stuck it through a lot of things. And think about this year. I mean, this year has been quite the year, of course, you know, for retail, for business, personally, everything. And when you really look back on it, I think sometimes you learn the most when you go through the worst of times, you know, for sure. You learn the most when you have the toughest business. And when business is great, you actually learn a lot less when things are going smoothly because you don't have to dig in as much as you have to dig in when you have to get very, very creative when business is tough. So I, you know, would recommend going to work somewhere that you really find a culture and a team that you gel with and a culture that you really think you'll thrive in. There are no good cultures and bad cultures most of the time. There are definitely some outliers for sure. But most of the time, it's just about a culture that works for you. You know, some people do really well in a really hard charging culture and others don't. So find the right place and then give it some time. Don't be in such a rush. Stick it out anniversary yourself in the same role. Well, let's talk about that because you actually, I read that you gave yourself a three-year timeline to evaluate this <laughs> first job. So I want to know, what were your KPIs of your three-year timeline? What were you looking for? <laughs> I wish I could tell you I was that smart and strategic. You know, I was 21 years old. I was moving from Texas to San Francisco and I thought, you know, 
time to move to one of the coasts. So I moved to beautiful San Francisco and I thought, how bad can it be? It's in San Francisco. Oh, it can be bad. You can't wear heels there because it's so hilly. <laughs> That's what I learned. That's why I can't live there. I think I, I may have still worn them. Um, but I think, you know, I went with just that carefree attitude that you have when you're young, which I think is awesome. And I just thought, well, you know, if it doesn't work, I'll get another job. So I just went in with that attitude, even though my first couple of years, I will tell you, were very tough. I would not call them enjoyable at all. Tough in what way? I had a really tough boss. I was so scared of her. No one was really teaching me how to do things. I mean, they would spend 10 minutes with me on something and then just throw me into it. And, you know, back in the day in the 90s at Gap, you know, Mickey Drexel was the CEO and I was so fortunate to have been able to work with him and under him during that time. I learned so much from him. But when you were 23, 24, they would have you stand in front of a group of 50 people, 100 people and do presentations. And sometimes you would get picked apart in front of a lot of people. And sometimes you would get the standing ovation. I mean, it was all emotions, you know, and everything in between. And so in many ways, what was amazing about the company at the time is it was very progressive. They were more female leaders of divisions than than most companies in retail. And, you know, that was a great place to start a career because I had all these incredible role models. Um, you were given a lot of responsibility at a very young age and a lot of empowerment at a very young age. And with that also came, you know, a level of scrutiny, perhaps, and accountability. So I learned all of that at a really, really young age in my career. And I wouldn't replace it for anything. Your working style back then, what qualities did you have that gave someone like Mickey Drexler trust in you? Because at 27, you were running multi-million dollar businesses. So this is not that many years later. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah it was like $200 million at 27? It was probably around that. Yep. So I would say, first of all, I was several levels under Mickey Drexler. Let me just be clear about that, you know, back <laughs> Got in, it. in my 20s. Got it. Um, even the men and women I worked right under at the time, you know, it was amazing how much responsibility and empowerment they gave me and, and many others, not just me. Um, but maybe I can back up a little bit to give you a little context about, you know, how I work. Um, my parents grew up in India. I think the British were still in India when they grew up, you know, so they really grew up in very traditional times and very traditional families. My father's one of 10 children. My mother is one of four. I have over 20 first cousins. Wow. And most of the women, female first cousins I have did not follow a career. So I was extraordinarily lucky in the sense that my parents were progressive enough to have decided to educate my sister and I abroad and to have given us so many opportunities that so many people in India, and by the way, you know, my entire family is college educated, all my cousins are college educated. So it's not, they didn't have the education. You know, these were choices that women were making even in my generation. So it's not lost on me, I think, that I have had a level of opportunity and privilege that I had to make the most of. Sure. You know, it just wasn't even a choice. So I think that's been a source of drive for me my entire life and my career and in my personal life to really make something of that, of those opportunities. So I think I just have that drive to push through everything. 
So I think I worked hard, you know, and I, I definitely recommend that. Put the effort in, you know, but I think life is all about part luck and part effort, probably equal measures of both. And one of them you can't actually do a whole lot about. So put the effort in. And I did. I am a curious person by nature. So I think I have a real thirst for learning. I love to learn from all of the incredible mentors I had, both men and women in my career. And I was very fortunate that way. And so I learned, I sucked a lot of knowledge in from everyone. I worked very hard and I had a lot of opportunities and Gap at the time was growing incredibly fast. And even though when you think about how long I was there, I think I was there actually for 15 years, I never was bored because every two to three years, they gave me a new opportunity. So I started menswear, then I went to womenswear, then I went to the international division, which is where I was you know, managing a fairly large percentage of the business. And I traveled all around the world. You know, I visited factories, I visited different countries, so on and so forth. Then I worked in the outlet division. So over time, I developed this sort of toolkit of lots of different skills. And I would say, you know, to a lot of young people listening and starting out in their careers, don't take a linear path if you can, you know, really think of your career as a jungle gym more than a ladder. And Think of it as a way, you know, you're in a video game and you're collecting superpowers along the way. Oh, I love that. You know, that's exactly how I would think about it. And every time you take a new experience, think about what you're going to learn. Yeah. You know, who are you going to go work for and what are you going to learn in this new job? What new superpowers are you going to get? And then you'll just make it to the next level of the game and the next level of the game because you have all these superpowers. And sometimes you have to go sideways laterally. Sometimes you have to take a pay cut. Sometimes you have to take a big pay cut or, you know, not take the big title that everyone that you graduated with has taken. But at the end of the day, if you just try to get those superpowers, I think you'll win the, the long game. Well, I'm going to venture to guess that when you say you worked hard, I'm going to say that you probably went above and beyond what you were required to do. And I find, and you know, now I'm consulting at a lot of different companies and with all due respect to everyone I work with, there is a definite stopping point at 6 p.m. And there is a definitely starting point at 9 a.m. And outside of those boundaries, in some cases, there's not a lot of work going on. So one mm. could argue, okay, great, work-life balance is so important, et cetera. But I do feel, and I would love your opinion, the people that we know who are really successful don't have those boundaries in that same way. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's important to have some boundaries. You know, I do. Of course. But I would say if you choose to do something that you absolutely love to do, you completely bought into the mission, maybe it's a purpose-driven company, or maybe it isn't a purpose-driven company, but the mission of the company, something resonates with you and you're all in you're going to be motivated to go over and above. And I will tell you, you know, I've heard leaders in the past complain, well, millennials are this, millennials are that, they're entitled, they don't want to work as hard. My company's full of millennials and they work extraordinarily hard and they have so much passion and so much drive. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to have that mentality of putting the mission, putting the team and putting the business sort of ahead of your own personal career agenda. Not to say that you shouldn't advocate for yourself. You absolutely should. But that just can't be the driving force of everything you do. Mm -hmm. 
And when you're in an organization where you're really putting the mission of the organization and the overall team and the business first, you're going to be the type of person that succeeds because everyone is going to notice that. And I would say the superstars in our company are not just the ones who deliver the results and you absolutely have to deliver your results, but it's also how they deliver the results. You know, they really are quite selfless in how they approach the work and what they do and how incredibly well they collaborate cross-functionally. And they don't have that sort of, this isn't my responsibility mindset. Mm -hmm. They just have a, how can we all get together and figure this out mindset? And that's really the winning formula. And and I think there are a lot of young people who have that mindset and they're going to be very, very successful as a result of it. I agree. What's your leadership style? You know, you should probably ask my leaders that. <laughs> possible. Let's get Meredith back on the phone. You know, it's interesting at the beginning, you said, you know, my role in this job is to really form the vision and strategy. And I would love to tell you that I spent 80% of my time on that. And I, I don't, I probably spent 25% of my time on that. But in running businesses, you have to be very comfortable being at 30,000 feet and at three feet under all the time. Yeah, well said. So my leadership style is I'm very inclusive with my leaders. Uh, I have an incredible group of leaders. Our leadership team at Intermix is not only a very diverse group of women and men, but they're also so fantastic at what they do. Each of them is so, so good at what they were hired to do. So what I like to do is to make sure that we are very aligned on our strategic priorities and our goals and what our deliverables are. And then I really, you know, empower them and hold them accountable for delivering those goals for the company. But it's quite amazing at how much you're pulled into the nitty gritty on a day to day basis. So I'm pretty involved in the business. You know, I'm in stores. I'm on the website. You know, I try to really think like a customer and put my customer hat on all the time. And if things don't look right to me, you know, I have no problems just going directly to one of my leaders and saying, hey, I wonder how a customer would look at this and how they would feel about this. So I spend some of my time in the details for sure. But I feel so fortunate that I have a super smart, super talented group of people around me that I can really empower and trust in the direction of business. And how do you handle if someone's just not pulling weight? Like, how do you sort of coach someone through when they're not delivering results? So I like to think of myself as a pretty authentic leader. And uh, the great thing about authenticity is that I think you always kind of know where you stand on things. So I like to think that I'm authentic and empathetic, an empathetic leader, but also one that is very comfortable holding people accountable for what they need to deliver. You know, I think with empowerment comes accountability. I think the two things go very much hand in hand. I agree. So, you know, when people are not pulling their weight, I have very honest, transparent, and clear conversations with them. You know, I don't like to have a lot of hidden agendas. And I feel most people, and, and I think almost all people, quite frankly, respond well to a direct conversation. And I don't think direct conversations, by the way, have to be harsh. You know, I think they can be respectful. I think they can be helpful, <laughs> incredibly helpful. So I think, you know, I, I always do that. And you have to have those type of conversations with your team 
whether you are starting out in your career and you're having conflict with the coworker or you know something like that, all the way through when you're running a company and you're having to have these conversations with very senior folks on your team. And sometimes it's trying to understand what's happening, you know, in their lives, especially in a time like this, right, you know, true. everyone is juggling a lot and you have to also understand that it's not just about work stress potentially, but it could be about a lot of things happening personally and around them that could send them sideways sometimes. And so I think you have to be able to have very direct and honest conversations. And I'm, I'm a pretty direct and honest person. I think that'll be pretty consistent if you spoke to my readers. <laughs> well, I would say, I think we're alike in that way. I'm super direct also, and probably sometimes too direct. <laughs> what are some lessons you've learned through this crazy time we're living in? I mean, you're running a massive, successful, multi-brand boutique across, I mean, how many stores do you have now? We have 31 stores. 31 stores plus e-com. I mean, you know, it's very interesting. As I said earlier, during the toughest of times, you know, you learn the most. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that comes out of tough times in business or even personally, perhaps in your lives is that it forces you to get very creative. This year wasn't one of those, let's make a slight right turn or slight left turn, right? In the business when the bottom fell out in the spring, we had to shut the playbook, put it aside and say, we need to write an entirely new playbook here. And everyone needed to move very, very quickly. And I have to credit my senior team and their teams on how quickly everyone pivoted. And Intimix, you have to know, and you know, Elisa, our brand so well, Mm -hmm. we are associated traditionally with all the fun times in your life. Yeah, with dates and benefits and going out and vacations and, you know, and that's a wonderful thing to be associated with the fun times in people's lives until the fun times completely stop, which is exactly what happened to us. So we had to change everything. We had to change the product assortment, the inventory, the um, marketing, the messaging. We're now entering into activewear, which wasn't a classification that we were in previously, but in some ways you know, of course, the backdrop is horrifying, you know, the amount of deaths we've had and illnesses we've had and all of that. And I don't want to discount that in any way. I mean, the the context of what we're speaking of has been really tragic on so many levels. But from business perspective, I will tell you this, it has forced us to be very creative, incredibly agile. And in some ways, I think that's really good because everyone has had to exercise muscles that perhaps you know, perhaps we were exercising a little bit, but we needed to exercise them a lot more. And so I think that that's been a very positive thing and hopefully a muscle that we can take forward with us, you know, even when when life normalizes. I mean, I'm sure you know this, but you have the best emails in the entire industry. <laughs> like every single brand, and you know, I consult for a bunch of people. Every single brand is like, Intermix's emails are so good. Like, <laughs> so you're definitely on a lot of vision boards and a lot of different offices <laughs> around New York City. Oh, that's great. Thank you. True. I'm sure my team would love to hear that. I take zero credit for that. I have a great team. Hopefully, they'll listen to your episode. <laughs> what would you say is the hardest part of your job and what skills do you feel are necessary to be successful in your role and in like any industry? 
I think the hardest part of my job, and I think, you know, if you'd asked me this question three years ago, I would have said something very different Mm -hmm. than I think I would say now. I think three years ago, you know, I would have said the hardest part is to find the best talent. It's an incredibly competitive market and size of business is all relative, right? So yes, we're a larger business to most people, but when you compare us to some of the people we compete with, you know, they're 5x, 10x size of our business. And we're all competing for the same type of talent. You know, everyone wants great product talent and merchants and buyers, and everyone wants great digital talent and customer, you know, CRM talent. So, you know, the things that kept me up at night is, you know, finding the right talent, you know, not only in terms of the technical skills, but the right talent for our culture. I've hired great talent previously who've left the company and gone on to do fantastic things. They weren't the right fit for us. They weren't the right culture for us and they weren't successful for us, you know? So finding the right talent, keeping those people motivated, keeping them in your company, you know, and keeping them constantly engaged was always the thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And we invest a lot in culture and our teams. Today, I think if you ask me, I'd say they're CEOs and presidents of companies are having to also balance just running a business, running it in a very tough economic climate, but also dealing with a lot of social issues that we're having to start formulating, you know, what is our point of view on this and how public do we want to be? And, you know, whether it's social justice issues or sustainability issues or or challenges They're really important subjects that I think we all have to put our arms around. And a couple of years ago at Intermix, we made a decision to launch a platform called Fashion for a Better Future, um, really because I felt it was really important that we weren't just a business that sold clothes and accessories, you know, and we needed to stand for something more than that. So our platform was really around female empowerment, because we're a women's brand, of course, you know, we wanted to make sure that female empowerment was important, which is the great work you're doing. We just launched a series called In Conversations with Women, where we are featuring these conversations with women from all different fields and careers, or speaking about different topics, such as confidence or voting and the environment. So female empowerment, sustainability, which we have our own agenda around, and then diversity and inclusion. So now, interestingly, you know, a lot of what I spend my time thinking about is who do we want to be as a company and how do we want to show up around these really important issues in our industry and in our society? And I think, you know, if you asked a lot of CEOs and presidents today, they'd say that they're spending more time thinking about these things than maybe they ever did five years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a positive thing. I think it's really good that we're all having to think about this, but it has its pitfalls. Let me tell you, you know, we just posted something about the historic event of having a vice president elect, first female vice president elect in the country, which is a historic moment, you know, irrespective of which side of the aisle and where your political beliefs lie. We also in the same post talked about the record number of women that are serving in Congress Uh, which of course are on both sides of the aisle. And we had a lot of positive response on that. And we had a lot of vitriol as well that we were dealing with. And it's hard to not take some of this stuff personally, right? Yeah. And also as a president and CEO of a brand, you feel this responsibility because you think, 
wow, you know, did I make a wrong judgment call or did I make the right judgment call? Because, you know, you don't want to alienate people, not just because you want them to be customers and spend money with you, but you don't want to, you know, if you're about inclusivity, you have to really mean it. You have to be inclusive to everyone. And so you feel these, you know, these emotions of, did we inadvertently make people not feel included in our community in some way by posting this, posting that? So, but if you don't say anything, you're also going to get backlash. And it's not the only reason we post things. We don't post things because we're afraid of how people are going to respond to it. We post things because we genuinely feel it's part of our company yeah. values to do so, you know? So I think it's it's kind of interesting. I think the societal pressures and, and what you're dealing with now as a head of a business are, are far greater. I think this is a really important topic, and I'm glad you brought it up because I think that you come from a time previously where you didn't really know where companies stood, certainly in fashion. You know, I grew up at Donna Karen. Donna Karen was a huge Hillary Clinton supporter. You would never really know from a company standpoint. And I remember she used to say, we love everyone with a credit card. You know, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. So that was, you know, the mantra. And then we've all as a world come to a place where your brand values and what you stand for have to be clear because Gen Z, especially, really want to know sort of the ethos and the core uh, mission and values of a company. And I think it's a bit hypocritical as well, because I think the customer wants you to stand for something as long as it's what they stand for. I mean, that's really what it is. So I think there's a double-edged sword here, because if we're going to all stand for something, then we all need to hold hands and say, even if we don't agree... We're going to still stand for something and respect each other's opinion, but it's much harder. And trust me, you are one of many, many brands who experienced that same thing. I don't know if you follow the home edit, but they went through hell on their post that they did. And I think also that goes back to not really knowing who the audience is, right? Because at the mm -hmm. end of the day, the customer that you see, you know, putting down their credit card for a dress on Intermix is not necessarily the person who's following on Instagram either. So there is a disconnect yeah. between yeah. social audience and consumer anyway. So I think it's super interesting. But I do believe that if you are posting your views and it's coming from a genuine place and it's something you really believe in and you're not doing it to be performative and you're not doing it because everybody else is, then you stand by it and you weather that heat for a minute and you move on. Exactly. And you're a hundred, I mean, you said it so perfectly. I think as a brand and as a company, we really thought internally about what were those values we wanted to stand for. And you're spot on that, you know, you have to be authentic about it. You must. Yes. And, you know, we are a company, as I said, you know, 80% women employees at every level of the organization. We are 40% people of color, both in the field organization and at corporate. So diversity and inclusion is part of who we are as a company. We are a diverse company. We could be even more diverse, but that is who we are. We have a lot of employees you know, of different ethnicities and backgrounds. And we felt it was important, you know, to us. And sustainability, I just think, is an urgent crisis, you know, in the world. And we're part of the second most polluting industry in the world. And so I think we all have a moral obligation, really, to do something about that. So we are very authentically attached to those different initiatives. They're not really initiatives for us. They're really part of who we are, part of our identity, and, you know, we're going to sometimes say things that 
rub people up the wrong way. And I know that, you know, I'm pretty sure we're not going to get called out for this being performative because it really is who we are. Absolutely. Um, but it's an interesting time for this, for sure. It is. And I think on the subject of sustainability, the thing that people don't realize is you have to aim for progress, not perfection. It's a process to oh, get to a place that you want to be. And it's not an overnight, like, let's turn on the sustainability button and all of a sudden we're a sustainable company. <laughs> and it's a little bit like steering a yacht around a, <laughs> an iceberg. You know, it's not that easy to turn the retail industry ship or the fashion industry ship that everyone's a part of. But I think companies that take steps towards, you know, should still be recognized as doing their part, even if they're not there yet. Yes. And, you know, I think, yes, it can be very difficult to make big changes, but it's also incredible how many changes you can make quickly. <laughs> and I think it really is both. And, you know, we really embarked on a sustainability agenda last year. And, you know, when I sit down and put down on a piece of paper, you know, everything that our teams have accomplished in a 12-month time period, it's extraordinary. And I'm sure it's not just us. I think a lot of companies are doing that. Um, I think people are very scared to be public about these things, quite frankly, because they're worried that if they say they did one thing, they're going to get lambasted, you know, for not having done a myriad of other things. But it doesn't matter. And it's exactly what you said. You know, we are not going out there and saying we are going to be a sustainable brand and retailer. What we are saying is our goal is to reduce our footprint and we're going to try to do everything we possibly can to reduce our footprint. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's that's really what we're what we're trying to do. One other thing I just wanted to say about consumers and social media and the response, I will say on the flip side, as hard as it can be sometimes to get the negative, it's also really useful. You know, it also stops and makes you think. Makes you think, oh God, I wish I didn't post that. Just kidding. <laughs> no, it just makes you think about a different perspective. And it forces you to also reflect and look in the mirror and say, could I have done that better? Or is there something we weren't empathetic towards? Or is there some mm -hmm. language we could have used to have empathized with another point of view that someone may have had? So I actually welcome it. I think it's good for us to hear both sides and every side, not both sides, probably 15 sides of an issue. And, you know, it helps you maybe broaden your own mind and think about things a different way. So, yeah, I think that's totally valid. How do you manage stress? And how do you, if you have like a really, really bad day at work, how do you bounce back? Like, what are your tactics? So this morning, I mean, every morning I wake up and I exercise. That's the first thing I do is get some exercise in. So sometimes I have more time on the weekends and sometimes I have very little time. But if I can even get 15 minutes of something in. What's your exercise of choice? So I love Pilates. Me too, yeah. So I do a lot of Pilates. I do Pilates, yoga, uh, strength training, I think is really my exercise of choice, uh, particularly now that people are not really going to gyms and things of that nature. I don't actually enjoy going to the gym. So that works for me. So I try to start the day off in as healthy of a way as possible, you know, not only in terms of exercise, but what I eat, just so that you kind of start your day on the right foot. What time does your alarm go off? It really depends. I would say six, 6.30 is probably quite normal for me. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think if you start your day on the right foot, you know, you want to keep that going. And if you start with 
behaviors that you're not going to be so proud of, you kind of might say to yourself, well, the day is shot anyway. So <laughs> you're less incentivized to start getting on the program. So I think I always try to you know, start that way. But to answer your question about stress, I think definitely exercise. I think definitely getting outdoors, even if you have to wear a mask. I think getting outdoors, getting some fresh air, I think can do you a lot of good. In fact, my day did not start off so well. I was in a terrible mood this morning. I'm glad it improved by the time I got you. I said, you know, I have Elisa today. So <laughs> you, you are my stress reliever okay, today. Perfect. Um, but I think, you know, a good glass of wine yes. is definitely involved probably on a daily basis. So yes, yeah. I think that's valid. And I have a daughter, I have a nine-year-old daughter who, you know, is a source of great joy in my life. So definitely lots of hugs. Oh, since so cute. She's really one of the few people I can hug now. So she's getting extra hugs, much to her chagrin. Is she in physical school or remote school? She is in physical school and really enjoying it. Oh, good. Um, she's very fortunate to go to school that's taken a lot of precautions. And so, yeah, we're pleased. So far, so good on that. All right, good. This was such a fascinating conversation. I feel like we covered so much. And of course, I have to end the conversation with how do you want to ultimately leave your mark? How do I want to leave my mark? I think first and foremost, in everything that I do, if I can further more women making it further in their careers, I think that will make me feel incredibly fulfilled. I think if I can do more to further the careers of diverse men and women, I think that will give me a great deal of fulfillment. I think if I can help reduce our impact on the planet, I think that will as well. And I think at the end of the day, if everyone that has worked with me in my career remembers that I made them feel great about themselves um, more than anything else, you know, more than the accomplishments that we've made together or had or the successes, I think if I, you know, made people feel great and feel confident and feel like they can achieve whatever they want to achieve, I'll consider that a huge success. I love that sentiment. And it's so true because we often forget about how our words, our actions make people feel, especially in the workplace, because you're so busy on the work that sometimes you don't take that into consideration. So I think that's a really good one. Thank you. Jyothi, thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun as I knew it would be since our last conversation <laughs> was also so much fun when we got to get dressed up and in real life. I know. Well, the tables were turned this time. Yes. The last time I was asking you questions and you were so fantastic. Oh, so thank, thank you. you for joining my team and so fun. sharing all of your great advice. Yeah. And I'm really honored and humbled to be here. And I wish everyone who listens to this much success in their careers and in their personal lives. Don't be afraid and be bold and go out there and do things you love to do. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalicht.com for more information. And just remember this. If change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.